This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Disruptors. Today's guest was a speaker at Monograph's conference, Section Cut, in 2021. I was so impressed with his research into learning and teaching cultures that I wanted to invite him on the show to have a follow-up conversation so we can dive a little deeper. We're also going to be discussing his career from architecture into tech and his current role as a chief technology officer. Speaking of Section Cut, Section Cut is back on for March 8th through 10th, 2022. Registration is free. We will drop that link in our show notes. And Janine, you and I will both be there. That's right. And we want to give a shout out to Monograph, who's hosting this great conference. And we were so energized by the event last year that we want to encourage you all to sign up if you're interested in transforming the practice of architecture or making positive change in your firm this is the event for you. Come join a lot of people who are interested in those same things by going to sectioncut.com to hear from a dynamic lineup of speakers. Now for our guest, Levo Lee is CTO at Catalyst DI, where he's working to design solutions to seamlessly integrate the construction supply chain. Levo is going to explain what that means and what it means to build a data-driven culture. Our technology and culture episodes are some of our most downloaded episodes in this series, so I know this is going to be a great conversation that bridges those two themes. We'll be illustrating the importance of culture and practice operations, specifically Lebo's research into organizational systems that support learning. So let's jump into it. Lebo, why don't you kick off this discussion by introducing yourself to our listeners, who you are, and why you're passionate about architecture and technology? Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you all so much for, for inviting me. I'm Lebo, and I think, you know, it's it's a little bit of a weird path how I got here, but I think connecting the dots um, in retrospect, uh, after everything makes sense, is, you know, my uncle was an architect when I was growing up in China. I think a lot of my early interest um, started there with, you know, some of the presence he brought me, some of the ways that he kind of influenced um, the way I thought whenever uh, I was able to visit him over the holidays. And um, when I moved to the U.S. Uh, and moved to Queens, I remember kind of in the early days of quote unquote the internet, right? When everyone had AOL CDs and I figured out how to like install AOL and Skype. And then my neighbors figured out that I knew that. So they asked me to install it for them. And, you know, that first uh, video chat and I just saw like the wife just crying, seeing her parents. And it was just a really uh, magical moment where you really saw like technology, even in its most basic form can, can really help people and really make a huge difference. And then, you know, I just kind of like screwed around for a while until uh, luckily I got into Rice, um, went to architecture school where I think I really honed in on that passion for architecture. And I think as you guys know and talk about a lot, uh, working in architecture is a lot less romantic than learning architecture. So I think that's what drew me to uh, kind of cross over to tech at WeWork, but also kind of continue down that path because I think, you know, with tech organizations, uh, you kind of get 
a much better sense of how an organization needs to iterate and improve to to kind of survive in in the modern ecosystem. You know, we've had other ex-we workers on, but I think you're one of the few that currently serves in the role of CTO. So we're excited because you, you're going to offer a unique perspective from that angle, from jumping from architecture and then applying it into that type of position. I think the question on our, our minds is, how does an architecture education prepare someone for a career in technology? And then what is it from those skills that you're actually applying and taking into this role? So, so that's a tough one. Um, again, kind of connecting dots in retrospect and really still trying to figure out exactly like what, what makes this transition successful. Um, but I think I was really lucky to, to be at Rice in a, in a quite, quite a special time. We had a new dean. Um, it was in, you know, a really big ideas pool of kind of transitioning ideas. So a lot of old school and new school in terms of uh, fighting each other. And, you know, I was super dumb, didn't take advantage of it. But I think being exposed to that broad spectrum of ideas was really important. Being able to work with uh, kind of these professors who had these really, I guess, formulated perspectives, kind of chisel at your stuff day after day, um, studio after studio, and seeing how their process of idea refinement uh, really works. And I think that's now my current, I guess, big thing is that design education kind of really builds an intuition for gaming out um, a lot of these scenarios, especially I think where I am now um, in a management position where a lot of the parameters aren't that well defined, in most cases ambiguous, to really be able to kind of intuit uh, and pattern match across all of these decision-making points that I encounter. You kind of alluded to it, but I'd like you to describe to our listeners what a CTO actually does, only because so many people approach me having moved from arch architecture to te technology, but I'm literally in, in the Ruse organization. And everyone wants to go into UX, right? Like that is like the move to make from architecture with a design background specifically. So can we talk a little bit about actually what a CTO does and the skills that your architecture training brings to, to that role? Tough, tough questions. I think... You know, defining the CTO role is is also, uh, I guess, not that clean of a proposition. I think it, it definitely changes during the different life stages of a company, but also as depending on, I guess, what the other skill sets of the um, executive team looks like. I think at, at Catalyst, my my role is broadly overall kind of bringing the technical insights into the overall company vision, overall company strategy from a from a broad perspective. But kind of operationally, um, I'm in charge of kind of both product and engineering, making sure that, you know, we build a, a cohesive working ecosystem that would lead to a cohesive product. I think the the one quote I always beat to death is that, was it the the systems that build systems, like build systems that look like a, 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 a reflection of the structures of that system. So I think in, in tech, it's, in my position, it's very much the same way. It's like, it's not so much as what the technology is, but how to build a team to build the technology in the right way to, to think comprehensively and to really make sure that our product is good and our technology is durable. And then I guess the second part of that is, you know, having that background in architecture, what do you take from that background beyond the fact that Catalyst is directly related to the construction industry? Do you use some of those skills, maybe problem solving or... In, in your role as a CTO? I think one of the big ones is um, the ability to think in different timescales. Also kind of the, the ability to dive 
into new topics and kind of surface uh, kind of conceptual patterns in those topics. Um, I find in my job, a lot of what I do is kind of pattern match, like what's appropriate for us today, what's appropriate for us in the midterm, what's appropriate for long-term, and how do we then build continuity across all of those operational patterns to get there? Um, so I think the two things from architecture that have really honed, honed me in on that are, are those two. Yeah, I think maybe we should dive into talking about what Catalyst DI is and what you guys are trying to solve. And then we'll, I'd love to go back and talk about technology as a disruptive driver for change. Uh, absolutely. So we're, we're still working on this. So definitely a feedback welcome. At Catalyst, uh, we're, we're really all about arming folks with like the right tools and the right workflows to build uh, repeatability and efficiency uh, in construction programs. As, as you guys probably know, right, like the majority consensus in the industry is thinking about construction projects at zero to one endeavors. You always kind of start over, deliver, start over, deliver. But really, especially in these large construction programs, there's a lot of repeatability and a lot of scale efficiencies that, that you can achieve. So our thesis is that what it really takes is reducing friction and integrating supply chain signals across kind of decision-making touch points all across that life cycle. So planning, design, execution, if everyone's making decisions on better data, we, we get a better end product as, a, as, a, as an aggregate. So we, we think there's a big barrier because it's just so hard for you know, companies to prioritize their, their construction components. So by uh, creating... Uh, low friction tools and a you know repeatable workflow. We can then guide the industry overall towards this future of repeatable parts and, and you know more uh, deeper interproject analysis through um, these repeatable components. Who are your primary clients? Then are you looking at owners? Are you looking at you know larger general contractors? At, at our stage right now, we're looking primarily at um, large owners. They're the ones who have the most value from a repeatable scaled approach to uh, construction programs. And they're also the ones that can really drive the most change because they're, they're kind of the most upstream from a lot of these changes. So I think by servicing these decision-making, what we call actionable intelligence to decision-makers at, at the top level, it, it starts to spin that wheel that um, can move the industry. Yeah, that reminds me when we talked to Brian, who's at Boston Dynamics, he's he's trying to implement technology uh, on the construction site. And yeah, to implement this level of change, it takes going to the big fish, to the, you know, the GC world, the, the owners, the developers who have the money to support the technology. I know you guys are trying to figure out how this how to implement this into real projects. So have you guys had success in terms of adapting it with different projects or clients? Um, so, so what we like to say is um, everything we do, uh, you can do today. It just is just a huge pain to do it manually. Um, so that's a lot of uh, kind of what we're currently doing in-house is manually doing this analysis, doing this work, doing this data collection, data organization on behalf of our customers and servicing these insights. What we're doing is, you know, understanding this wide diversity of sort of data access patterns that customers need to then translate into more automation, more facilitated workflows through our software ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, what I'm hearing is like you guys are kind of uh, aggregating the research around this that, and I see this in my work too, that there are the themes that show up across projects and project types and organizations that repeat. And so I'm seeing it more as like the data and is helping you guys inform the research on how you're designing the product and the, and the tools. Do you want to come back to this question? I, I think about 
how much technology has changed everything. And I think there's some people that see it as disruptive. I think some people embrace it, but I definitely think it has been a driver of change in the architecture industry. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. It's tough. It's definitely hard to point to, I think, any any one thing, but, you know, it's technology is just changing everything up, uh, up and downstream from, from where we are. I think that, you know, perhaps feeds into, you know, part, part of our approach that's much more focused on data rather than any sort of particular, I guess, horizontal, because we kind of see technology creating a big reshuffle. In, in how the industry is organized, um, how that shakes out, no one knows. Um, but I think everyone knows that it's coming. I guess no, no real answer for you there, but a, a lot of uh, I'm worried and I'm thinking about it. So a follow up for me to that question then is as an as an architect, as a practitioner, hearing about Catalyst DI, like what what should I understand about what Catalyst DI might do for my practice, or at least should I should be aware about in terms of, of the shift that it might create, especially as you're positioning to go after owners? Oh, uh, absolutely. That's a great question. I think, you know, maybe beyond, beyond just, just architects, like I think everyone who, who is an information user in, in construction should kind of ask, like, what information am I communicating upstream and what information am I communicating downstream? And how does that affect the decisions and work that happen before and after me? I think from an architect perspective, there, there's a lot of frustrations uh, in terms of information reconciliation between architects and owners, architects and partners. And if we kind of, you know, dig into each of those situations, we often find that there is some sort of mechanism that's not working to build agreement between those two parties on exactly what is happening. So that's a big part of what we're trying to help is that create those mechanisms for this better, more detailed, higher fidelity agreement between parties. So I feel like we're going to take a pretty hard jump off of the technology conversation into our cultural piece. So just in preparing our listeners, but when I heard you speak at Section Cut, you were really talking more about organizational systems which leads into communication structures and learning cultures. So maybe you can help us make the leap into that conversation. What pulled you from technology into that conversation? And then I'd love to hear maybe just your intro on that research. So, so I wouldn't really call it research. Um, definitely not, not as rigorous as, you know, real researchers. I hope they don't take offense to that. I think for me, it's, it's almost the, the same thing. I think for, for us building technology in a way without really great patterns out there to, to directly follow, it does take a really adaptive and a really sensitive learning culture to, to kind of get there. One thing that uh, the CEO and I talk a lot about is like, we, we don't know what we don't know. And the best way to combat that is to get really good at knowing what you don't know and then trying to close those gaps. Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode. Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. 
Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Originally, the IT provider tried to recover all of their files at once. This took them a very long time and resulted in multiple errors and restarts. Once ArcIT took over, they were able to come up with a precise recovery strategy by asking a simple question. What projects are the most critical projects your team is working on now? The team at ArcIT started the process of recovering these files and had the mid-sized firm up and running within four hours. After that, ArcIT was able to slowly recover the rest of their files. Because of ArcIT's strategic approach to cybersecurity and IT in general, this award-winning design firm has not experienced any major security threats or downtime events since. ArcIT has been their trusted partner for over three years. ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with Practice Disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to enable two-factor authentication for every business-related service and personal services that store sensitive or credit card information, including Netflix. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. Tell us a little bit more about your presentation that you did at Section Cut last year. What was what was the main idea of that work? I guess the major idea is everyone should learn to code. Um, but the supporting idea is that I, I've been, you know, in my pretty short career across a lot of different organizations, and I think the ones that I feel uh, most attracted to and the one that I feel is the most productive are, you know, these very adaptive organizations since ones that can sort of morph and shift and continue to survive in a changing ecosystem, but really critically self-question their own process and their own ways of collaboration as they're doing it. I feel like Janine and I have been talking about the need for architecture firms to be more adaptive systems. What enabled you to create this mindset, this drive, you know, for continual adaptation? And what and why do you think architects tend to get stuck in this rut? of we, we've always done it that way. So that's the way we're going to continue to do that. Alternatively, the question could be, how can, how can we shift the mindset of the architects to think more about the need for adaptive systems? That's super tough. Um, I mean, any, any question was, I guess, like changing culture and changing mindsets, I guess never, for me, never has like a, like a truly direct answer. I think in, in my experience, a, a lot of it 
uh, is kind of thinking from a sort of evolutionary perspective. Like everything is kind of in a constant cycle of change. History has sort of shown us that doing the same thing over and over again, there, there is an eventual uh, endpoint where something else will, will come. Um, and I think it's, it's about the sensitivity and the recognition of when that happens. A lot of times it, it feels like it's a lot further than, than it seems for, for a lot of folks in, in architecture because just the, the timescales are, are so long for, for a lot of what we do and so much of it has been preserved for so long. But I think when I went into architecture, that inflection point seemed to me a lot closer than, than what a lot of other people felt, which prompted me to make the change and the adaptation. Maybe perhaps that perspective isn't, isn't shared and that's why there's not as much of a, of a fear of not surviving into the next world in, in our industry. I do think, at least in the Bay Area, you know, that where there's an extreme competition for talent, that there, there are local firms in the, that firms of the local AIA com, um, components are saying, you know, we are no longer competing just with other architecture firms. We are competing against all of these technology firms. So I'm hoping, if anything, that pushes some architects to kind of rethink their offerings and how they're doing things to, to reattract the, the talent back to traditional practice. Uh, totally. And also, like, you know, as as I've gone through these companies, there's a lot of people really interested in, in architecture. Like, why can't architecture firms attract talent from other industries? Absolutely. I don't think they would know what to do with them right now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. I think, you know, we like architecture firms kind of like put horse blinders on and try to narrow them themselves uh, more and more when, you know, there's just probably a lot to be gained from opening up a little bit and learning from um, other industries and other people. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know, I think the rigorous nature of our education, like limits, you know, how we view pe- people coming into the industry, like, oh, you haven't, you haven't gotten this special degree and you haven't <laughs> suffered through studio. So um, what do you know about being an architect? But I agree. I think there's a lot to be learned by broadening our, our collaboration with other thought leaders out there. You know, we'll link the presentation that you did at Section Cut in the show notes. But what I found really interesting about your perspective is, you know, you were talking about data and you just said it that you saw that the technology piece and the cultural piece like were one in the same. And I and I saw you diagramming visually these elements of organizational frameworks and systems that are essentially people. I mean, it can be data, it can be people, but it's about the connection that you saw between these different networks coming together and how different variations of that structure can result in different learning cultures. So I'm curious, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the learning cultures that you see supporting growth and and positive contributions towards creating, be it a product in technology or a building that you're building on a construction site. So I think if I remember the the graphic correctly, it's like a, a series of dots with like lines between them, right? And I, I think my whole point was that with that diagram is like most uh, organizations that are really frustrating to, to work in um, look like it's just a bunch of scattered dots and they all have like one or two connections, but directly to each other. So any, you know, point to point interaction usually is like a long game of telephone 
right? You get a ton of email chains, you get, you know, nine people in the same meeting being like, oh, well, why are we inviting this meeting? Oh, okay, this person called it, what's going on? What should we do? One that, uh, especially enabled with technology that could look much better is one where these individual bubbles are connected to uh, functional systems that are these central sources of truth for whatever uh, action they're performing. And these functional systems talk to each other in very protocol ways that sort of enforce the best practice structures of the business. What this should do is uh, take all those point to point connections that weren't contributing to person to person kind of get to know, like, you know, uh, mentorship, uh, learning from each other, and really portion that time for those interactions and uh, really reduce the amount of effort it takes to do, you know, your everyday task tracking, what's going on in the business, and relegate those to the plethora of really good business systems that, you know, exist today. Yeah. I mean, when I saw that presentation, I really saw your architectural training coming to life in the way you were talking, because I think we go through this rigorous process of learning about diagramming and seeing these patterns. And what I saw you do is take that same approach, which most people who are trying to become architects would apply towards programmatic constraints to think about a building, but you took it and applied it to systems thinking in operations and in terms of idea development for technology. And so that's how I saw your training showing up. And yeah, maybe other people do that too. I don't know. Maybe it's a part of technology culture to do that. But I I found it really inspiring. And I think a lot of people really enjoyed your talk. I think what you had to offer was really interesting and compelling and made me pause to really think about those systems and as you're defining it, parallels to technology, culture and technology not being dissimilar. Uh, maybe maybe on that diagram point, no, I think that's a that's a really good connection. Definitely uh, thinking through diagram was one of the things that Rice Architecture really pounded into my head. Um, and it, it holds true um, in, in the ways that we talk about, you know, user access patterns, like UX flows, even like, you know, architecture diagrams, it's all just like bubbles and lines. And if you just can think in bubbles and lines and put different things in those bubbles, like it, it, it all works. So. Yeah, no, I was, so, you know, Catalyst DI is a relatively young organization and you're obviously on the executive leadership team. So, you know, how are you taking those thoughts and learnings to, to the development of, of the culture of Catalyst? And can you tell us, especially in this hybrid world, you know, it, I believe you're a highly distributed team too. So how are you managing building that culture in, in a very distributed way? I think we're we're managing is the best way to put it. We think we're doing a, a adequate job, but uh, we're we're not doing the the best job we know we know we can. We're a fairly distributed team, so we're remote first. There's people on both sides of the country. I actually work Eastern hours on the West Coast, which is super fun. But part of being remote, I think, is having really good communication systems and good communication practice. Um, something that we repeatedly try to work on and try to ingrain our culture. Um, How do you communicate asynchronously? How do you communicate clearly? How do you get people aligned at the right levels um, to make sure everyone's pointing in the same direction? How do you make sure that when effort is being spent, especially at this early stage, when, you know, every hour of everyone's time, you know, really matters, how do you make sure that people, you know, feel like they're spending time on things that they're passionate about that bring value to the company that ultimately isn't something that, both from a organization, from an executive standpoint, we're like, why are you doing that? But also from the person standpoint, it's like, well, I thought this was what brought value to the company. You made me do this, right? So a lot of those things are 
are things we're just, you know, working through on a case by case basis mostly, but, you know, our North star is in a way clear to us, right? What good look like looks like is clear to us. And, and we're just trying to get there. there. There's no, there's no magic bullet. Um, but I think there's just a lot of different techniques and uh, frameworks and ways of talking about things that help in, in different situations. It's interesting to hear you say that. I was doing this talk with AIA Colorado yesterday and their leaders that are coming into the organization. We were talking about what does it take to be a leader in 2022 when the rules are all different? And I think what you're talking about is exactly what it takes. Like knowing what your North Star is, knowing like the direction of the change that you're trying to work towards. And it's it's normal you don't have a roadmap right now. Most people don't for what's going on. And then, but knowing your mission and your vision and the direction you're trying to move, you you build the roadmap towards that direction. So thank you for illustrating that. I want to ask about cultural frameworks, because I think this was a key point that you were talking about for building adaptive organizations. So what themes contrast in organizations that are adaptive versus stagnant? So cultural frameworks on the first one, um, the one that has really resonated with us recently is, is the Netflix culture. No Rules Rules uh, It's a great book. Definitely recommend the read. It's it's pretty hardcore, but it, it drives at some some really uh, hard truths on you know how hard it is to build uh, an organization that's continuously innovative, that's continuously resilient against you know such dramatic market changes and market forces. So I think for me, the difference between an adaptive and a stagnant organization is uh, going back to kind of that, that North Star is, is understanding where that North Star is and how it responds to the world changing. I think adaptive organizations will always see a point in the future where they're like, okay, like that's, that's us thriving in the future. We need to get to thrive in the future. Whereas like a, a stagnant organization will will kind of look at what they're doing and they'll be like, you know, this is this is good enough and this will be good enough for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. So <laughs> why why fix what ain't broke? And I think, you know, as people working in organizations, it's very easy to to tell uh, when your organization is one way or the other. Do you practice radical candor then like Netflix? Because I feel like that's, part of like the most hardcore and also I think it's, it's really tough. I mean, maybe people coming from the architecture world is used to like those type of critiques. We try to, that's, that's one of the principles we're, we're trying to strive toward, but no, absolutely. Right. Architecture school does help you deal with that, right? Like no other training really uh, slogs you through loving your idea for six months and then having someone shit all over it over and over again. Right. But I think at the same time, right, um, it's it's really important for for a company, especially uh, a early stage startup, to to be brutally brutally honest with each other and really understand truthfully the distance between you right now where you need to be. Um, <laughs> on the executive team, we have a spreadsheet that's like you can't you can't build a successful startup lying to yourself, and it's just us listing out all the deficiencies, kind of we we need to overcome and. And uh, the gaps we need to close to, you know, be the the right leadership team to to be respectful of this opportunity and be respectful to to our team. I mean, I guess like the the follow up question there is because because you jumped in and thank you for jumping in is I think radical candor is necessary, but it's also like really hard. It's all about having tough conversations. So you know, some startups tend to hire people with a certain level of experience to really get going 
really fast. But how, how do you kind of warm up and prepare people that are not used to being in that environment to that ra- like for that radical candor and that transparency? Um, that's a tough one. Uh, when you figure it out, definitely let me know. Because okay. um, <laughs> uh, that's, that's definitely been, been a growing pain, I think, as, as a part of, especially, you know, a startup in, in construction dealing with such a, such a specialized uh, vertical is that there is a growing pain for our company to, you know, get into what, you know, startups would expect as startup culture. How, how we close that gap, uh, we're still working on it, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a conscious thing that, that we're, we're constantly tackling. So I think it, it goes back to that culture building point where we have a North Star and, you know, we're just whacking at it any way we can. It's nice to hear that you guys are assessing for the gaps. And I think a lot of people who get stuck, they struggle with confronting their limitations or even their failures. But it is, I think, refreshing to hear that you guys are taking a really honest look at those areas that you perceive as deficiencies, whether they are or they aren't, I don't know. It just makes me think about like the flexibility, you know, when I think about startup culture and like the way that I perceive that people need to lead in this like uncertain world, flexibility, adaptability, um, hard, difficult conversations. You know, one of the things that I think people are really struggling with right now is overwhelm with all this change. And I'm curious, you know, this is kind of a question for both of you, because you both work at technology focused companies, which would infuse a culture being comfortable with change and adaption. So with so much change happening and so many variables, like how do you guys deal with the feelings of overwhelm that come up or how do you keep pace with the change that's coming forward from so much technology changing? I think it's back to how you build the culture, right? One of the first things that I remember my hiring manager at Slack asking me about was just my ability to deal with ambiguity and how do you work through that ambiguity um, and being okay with it. And if you think about it, architects actually work through a lot of ambiguity in project development, right? Like the, the owners give them kind of what they want. But like architects, in a way, they kind of have to investigate for their like, okay, is the owner telling me what they need versus what they want? And usually people are telling you what they want, right? And then there's like so many other parameters that you actually have to figure out and, and work through and then hope that when you present those scenarios to the owners that you've kind of hit it on its head. So so for me, it's it wasn't anything new, but for whatever reason, I feel like the architecture world we take all this creativity in our projects and we have such a hard time applying that to business systems and business operations. Yet, like, we are we are operating through that ambiguity all the time. We are operating with, like, a quarter of the information that we need to get to the end product. Okay, so how do you kind of take that mindset and apply it to, to practice? And I think what technology firms do well is, like, they just acknowledge that they're constantly operating in ambiguity you know, whether you're new to the industry or whether you've been in the industry for like 30 years, for multiple decades, you know, they're always looking out. They're, they're never settling because they know if they settle, they're going to lose out to their competitor. So, you, so the, there's that constant push to continue to adapt the practice as well. 
Uh, I think the the point you made about operating on on partial information, I think I think that's huge. You know, the the way I look at it is like you're you're always maybe in have having the same partial understanding, but the pie is getting bigger. Um, and you'll you know keep leveraging you know more sophisticated tools, but you know your view of the the bigger pies might might always stay the same, and you might always need to operate in in that mode. And I think another thing that architecture really teaches us um, is you know how you learn and learn fast, dealing with new situations, new, new typologies, uh, new customers, new information, uh, new locales, right? It, it does force you to, to build that skill. And for me, that's a big part of dealing with, with the pace of change is I think a lot of, well, I don't want to say a lot of folks, but sometimes people get into operating at velocity and for whatever reason, they, they kind of just get, get stuck on that and it, it it gets overwhelming because the world is you know moving faster and if you're just moving at the same speed it's going to only going to get worse and worse i think a lot of uh especially in, in tech um i think a lot of the the books that get floated around a lot of the articles get floated around um really encourage you to look at accelerating um your ability to operate kind of in this world whether that's you know learning new technologies learning new techniques or like even building fundamentals like being able to read faster or like typing faster, all of these things kind of contribute to how you can accelerate your ability to deal with this growing information ecosystem. It also, for me, goes back to the business plan and the business model, right? If, if we bill out on an hourly basis, like what is the incentive in our industry to accelerate any of that? Yeah, like, I think, you know, at, at, a, at a point when everything thing is uh, changing, like being, I guess, attached to that business model, Seems kind of silly, you know, uh, should be more firms trying something new. Janine and I are sitting here nodding our heads, of course. But, we, um, we totally agree. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I just, it's so helpful to get different perspectives on this because I, I'm constantly trying to figure out like, what's the argument on how to change this behavior. And I think it's a lot of different things. Um, so it's nice. It's nice to hear your perspective on this. We're starting this thing that we, with the new season that uh, we want to ask our guests uh, for one main idea or lesson on change that you think is needed in the practice of architecture that you want to pass forward. Um, and this would go for architects, emerging professionals, and industry disruptors who are listening. So what what idea is that for you? So my go-to is always learn to code, but I came up with a better one for you guys. I, I don't know, reflecting on, I guess, my experience in the architecture culture is that there, there seems to be like a threshold beyond which architects aren't willing to go past. I think uh, an indicator of that is, for me, is like how many architects want to go into UX. Like, there's so much crazy shit you can do in tech. Like, why are you so stuck on doing UX, right? Like, and that for me is like, what what is putting that barrier in front of you where when you step out, you can only step out into that kind of contained territory. And I really encourage everyone to kind of like lean much deeper into going down that rabbit hole and learning something. We live probably in the best time in terms of information availability and just how many people are trying all sorts of silly things to get you to learn something. And we're just sitting here refusing to learn. So, I mean, that would be my my one thing. I'm also curious, because uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there listening who would love to go into tech and they might be sitting in an architecture firm right now going, I have no idea how to make this jump. So what's your advice to them? And if they have aspirations to become a CTO, what would you recommend? Um, it's... Definitely uh, think about putting in the work. Um, a lot of things don't come easy. And while you're working on it, the answer 
might not readily present itself. Uh, like, I guess a lot of what I was thinking is like, you know, a lot of things connect in retrospect, but while you're doing it and when you're in the thick of it, you never know how things are going to turn out. So be prepared to go down a lot of roads that might not have very nice things at the end of it. But that learning experience is ultimately, I think, what what builds a comfort of what your role and what your identity in tech could be. Um, I think a lot of architects that that leave architecture deal with kind of a an identity crisis almost where, you know, they've attached so much of their personal identity to that, that finding kind of another label is, is the immediate next step. But really, it's just a part of that journey. And I think more people can let themselves be on that journey rather than, you know, trying to be at the end of it too quickly, the better. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarcit.com slash pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.